Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, Arc's weekly podcast on innovation and technology investing. Today we're speaking with Dr. George Church, a pioneer of synthetic biology and one of the most impactful scientists working in genomics today. Dr. Church is a professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School, the director of personogenomics.org, and a co-founder of 22 companies, including Veritas Genetics, Warp Drive Bio, and Nebula Genomics. His myriad innovations have enabled technological breakthroughs related to next-generation DNA sequencing and CRISPR gene editing. In our conversation with Dr. Church, we touch on a wide range of topics within genomics, such as next-generation oncology, the security and regulation of genetic information, gene editing, and the blazing pace of the genomic revolution. Please enjoy this episode of FYI with Dr. George Church. You know, I, I think when we approach the, the genomic space and, and look at kind of the innovations in, in the platform itself, I think the genesis of where it all starts for us is looking at what have been historical and kind of future cost declines of, of DNA sequencing and how have we gone through these order of magnitude cost declines and what, in a stepwise manner, what areas of the market have sort of been unlocked or what areas of research have been unlocked by that precipitous decline in, in cost. So, one thing that I've been really curious about is as we go down from the less than $1,000 or so price point today and we go through that $100 price point and kind of reach a, a steady state maybe in the single digit dollar range. How can that conversion, do you think, unlock new areas or what are the most coiled springs that are going to be enabled by that next step in terms of order of magnitude cost decline? Right. Well, so I would I would argue that we're already well below a thousand. So there's two components. One is the cost of manufacturing it on a large scale, and then the price to the consumer. And I would say the cost is getting down around three hundred in the most efficient operations, uh, which is all you care about, really. They're going to be the leaders, and the price is getting close to zero, and it won't hover at single digits. It will go below zero. Because the, the entire system can easily recover the $300 times 20 easily. I mean, you, you can get a 20-fold return on investment. And so you're going to dribble out that 20-fold return on investment to anybody that you want to incentivize to participate. Because we're kind of at the, the point where the cell phones, where you wanted to get the most phones into people's hands and the most towers and, and transponders and so forth. I don't think you need to be a loss leader at this point. You just, you, you know, there's a 20-fold return on investment. You just need to encourage people to participate because there's some network effects. So I think that's where we are and that's where it's going. Now, if you did big cost reductions, then you're starting to talk about things like DNA as a storage media, DNA for ubiquitous black boxes in living systems, including humans, that sort of thing. But that would be quite a bit more than a factor of 10 that would be required for that would be my guess. 
You can still do DNA as a storage system if you don't read it very much. In other words, it's completely independent of the reading costs. So, you know, our group has pushed on ridiculous cost reductions for both reading and writing and editing, but they're all in the, somewhat independent. It's, it's very hard to edit without being able to read, but other than that, they're fairly independent. So in terms of the zero-dollar genome, I mean, that's essentially what you're insinuating. What are the obstacles that we have to overcome to, for society to be ready for that? And what does that mean, one, for, from a healthcare perspective? And you mentioned DNA-based storage. What technologies need to be ready in order to have a DNA-based storage to be adopted widely? Those are two fairly different things. So I'll just separate them. So I think to get a zero-dollar human genome, this is not for data storage necessarily. I think we've solved most of the technical problems we need to make that financially viable, but there are a lot of social issues. So people either need to uh, be convinced that it is secure, or they need to be convinced that there's no point in it being secure, or both. So you could argue there's a point in it being secure because anybody can get your DNA just by shaking your hand or, or following you around. But that's also true. Anybody in principle could eavesdrop on your conversations with a parabolic reflector or, or wiretap, illegal. But in practice, they don't. So what we need is, is maybe reassurance that, that the whole homomorphic encryption blockchain model of, say, nebula genomics is, is working. Few early adopters, few uh, maybe challenges where hackers are, are challenged to, to hack into it. We've done that already with the Personal Genome Project in the past, where we, we have a data set which is completely open, or is at least consented to be open, and then we see whether we can, whether it escapes, and whether it get, mainly whether it can be re-identified. So we could do the same thing for the homomorphic encryption and blockchain model to show that you can ask questions of it in a fully encrypted form. It's never shared in an unencrypted form. In fact, no one, no one even possesses it. You, could, you can even go directly from the DNA to an encrypted form with no intermediate disk drive. That's, these are all technically possible. We just need to, to see which of these is, is required for the social acceptance and which ones, you know, what we have to do to prove that. The second thing we need to do is communicate clearly what the utility is. So you can be convinced that it's, that it's totally affordable and that it's totally private, but then you can say, but... I never use my seatbelts. I've never heard of anybody needing their seatbelts. Why should I use them? And so you need to have an argument that, yes, it is only a 5% chance that you or your family will, will, have a, will be able to avoid a horrendous fate, but isn't that good enough, right? So that would be one sort of incentive, but there might be other ones. So with the seatbelts that never did break through on the logical health policy, public health aspect, it was more making an annoying sound was what really got people to adopt the seatbelts. Uh, and maybe we need to do a similar thing with couple, you know, it's like coupling the motivation with something else like dating apps or something that they're going to do anyway. And this is just one more thing that, that uh, doesn't cost them anything, doesn't cost them any time or just to add on. Do you think that as, as people get a little bit more comfortable and more aware of blockchain protocols generally, or maybe even tonally or, or culturally more accepting of kind of a, a data sharing economy, do, do you see this as, as being an, an easier thing to convince people or, or kind of entice people to participate in? Uh, have you seen that with Nebula? Well, I think Nebula is brand new. And so it's a little early to, to I mean, there's a lot, what we're seeing are the 
the super early adopter blockchain enthusiasts, and, and they're showing up in droves. But the older experiment we've done is the Personal Genome Project goes back to 2005. And again, we're seeing a sliver a sector that's, inter- that's very enthusiastic. This, this, that's not the blockchain enthusiasts, that's the kind of the open source enthusiasts. And they're both sort of uh, likely to be science enthusiasts or they have some serious disease in their family as uh, additional motivation. But I, you know, I think to get really broad acceptance, we need to appeal to, there's uh, two kinds of people we can appeal to, but, but we should get it, it should be at least as broad acceptance as, say, organ donation or blood donation or walkathons for uh, your favorite diseases. Or in the matchmaking dating app side of things, it's a, we have t- essentially two ways to win. One is the research model and the other is the self for, for your own family, if you're, if anybody in your family is of reproductive age. Right. And then in terms of, of broadened acceptance and kind of the, the utility that you're, you're noticing by accumulating this information, I'm curious about, say, in the next five or 10 years, where I know we're seeing a lot of population genomics projects begin to become a little bit more disparate and pop up all around the world. And I've been reading a lot recently about how issues or, or holes in, in having more holistic tests stem from not having a, a broadened database of, of different ethnicities, full genomes. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you see increased population genomics as a kind of a, a prohibitive step to getting very, very accurate tests or things like that? Or, or is that something that, that you see changing sometime in the next, say, again, five or 10 years? Well, I think we need to break it up into two parts. I mean, one is the parts that are extremely impactful and already well worked out, which is intense Mendelian diseases, highly impactful, very serious genetic uh, diseases, many of which are almost all of which are very well understood. Although there's no cure for them, there is a preventative, which is the uh, matchmaking as early as possible in relations that could lead to offspring. That doesn't require a huge amount of additional research. It, in a, in a certain sense, it will help convince people that additional research could be valuable for other things, but we've already got this one thing that we can do. And we hope to get everybody in the door, or everybody that has, you know, is of reproductive age in the door on that particular aspect. The research aspect is going to be the sort of people who volunteer for blood drives and so forth. I don't think they need to be convinced when or if the research is going to pay off, particularly because the Mendelian disease component is already paying off. We can do that with currently available knowledge. So right now, I feel like we are in the midst of a genomics revolution. We've had, we've seen these massive cost declines because of, uh, or, or in DNA sequencing. And now we have cheap, easy, less complex ways of uh, conducting genome editing uh, with the likes of CRISPR gene editing. So if you're looking forward, so now you have these two technologies, and let's say that you know, there's also has been a rise of machine learning and AI, and there's been a convergence of these technologies. So just thinking about it very high level, where are you seeing these technologies converging and where is healthcare heading? Whether it might be in the realm of synthetic biology, how we diagnose diseases or even treat diseases, where are we heading? Well, I think that despite their tremendous promise, uh, protein drugs, 
especially orphan drugs and gene therapies for rare diseases, even though they're collectively quite common, they're individually rare and they have to be approved one by one. What's attractive uh, alternative to that, and it's part of the revolution, no doubt about it, is, is this idea of preventative medicine, taking it as early as possible. I don't call detecting circulating tumor cells preventative medicine. By the time they're circulating, your cancer is already pretty far progressed. Preventative is, is when you do it before, while there's still zero cancer cells. And this can be done by reading your genome and understanding it and, and, and acting appropriately. By, it can be by uh, mate choice, you know, as early as possible. It doesn't have to involve pregnancy termination, although it can, but, but earlier is before get married, ideally before you even fall in love. These are times where it sounds funny, but it is extremely powerful medicine but doesn't require FDA approval. There's, there's, it's a, a very strange combination where we have technology that already works, we have a database that already works, there's no downside in terms of false positives. If, there's, if you're going to remove 5% of the people of, of uh, appropriate dating for you, you remove another 5%, it doesn't matter. So it's a, it's a unique opportunity. There is a revolution going on in terms of synthetic biology, and it will have impact uh, on gene therapy, but I think it'll have bi probably bigger impact on uh, things like environmental components, uh, carbon sequestration, you know, safer agriculture, maybe more vegan agriculture, engineering the environment so that very poor populations can escape some of the incredibly burdensome diseases that, that don't currently have affordable solutions. So even less expensive than vaccines, which has been a revolution in lowering some of the causes of poverty, there's still a few remaining diseases that are not solved by vaccines. And there are some synthetic biology solutions to those that may be even cheaper than vaccines. And so we, I think like gene drives and, and other things that impact the vectors out there. So I think there are quite a few things that can be done that are incredibly cost-effective and would not only help industrialized nations, but impoverished ones as well. So I, I was having a, a discussion recently with an epidemiologist, and he was telling me a little bit about his interpretation and, and his use of polygenic risk scores. So I, I wanted to kind of dovetail a little bit into something you mentioned insofar as preventative medicine is concerned. What sort of weight or interest do you put on the interface as we do more germline screening and, and, and sequencing and, and combine that with fairly and more sophisticated uh, machine learning models, H how can we imagine polygenic risk scores evolving? And is that something that could potentially be used as a preventative technique to kind of sort people along a risk distribution? Or is that something that you think is still a little bit too far away or, or too complex to kind of embed itself within routine clinical practice? No, I don't think it's too far away. Uh, in fact, I think w these days we tend to mostly underestimate the revolution. Uh, things arrive much faster than, than we expect, and we're ill-prepared for them. I think sometimes people will say, oh, this is far off. It's some kind of reassurance. Well, you don't need to, you don't need to learn about it now because it's far off. And I think that's not, not serving us well. The, the, for example, the affordable genome was supposed to take six decades, and it took more like six years. And I think the same thing is happening with some of the interpretation tools. Those are being accelerated in part because of machine learning and in part because of the 
precipitous drop in price and the realization that any day now there could be the tipping point where everybody finally clicks that, oh yeah, just like I once upon a time I didn't want to have a carry around a computer, once upon a time I didn't want to get my genome sequenced. They're very analogous things. And so there's, there's all this software that's developing. The machine learning is a key component. Of it. Now the thing about the complex uh, polygenic risk scores for complex diseases is that sometimes there are simple solutions to them. There are many complex diseases that involve stature, height, that are solved in the clinic with a single gene product, a single protein somatotropin. Sometimes there'll be a single monoclonal antibody that'll solve a very complex disease. Cancer is certainly complex disease, and we're getting simple immunotherapies. Almost all of pharmaceutical science has been simple solutions to complex problems. Knowing the complexity helps us find those simple solutions. But in addition, we now have the, the possibility of doing uh, complex solutions to complex problems. So for the first time, we're now editing uh, thousands of sites simultaneously. So it, just a few years ago, I mean, literally pre-CRISPR 2012, it was a big deal to edit two genes. And then a, a few years later, we edited 62 genes simultaneously to eliminate endogenous retroviruses from pigs for transplants. And then a few years after that, we're now doing 13,000. I think it doesn't take a lot of extrapolation to see how this can be made safer and aimed at all the polygenic risk score components or some subset that makes sense. So we should pay attention to both of the simple solutions to complex problems and the complex solutions to complex problems. So I'm glad you mentioned kind of the progression of uh, multiplexing and multi-editing in a single cell. So uh, I remember back when I was in the lab uh, just doing a single edit. And, it, and if it worked, that was fantastic. The PI was very happy. And now your lab was able to multiplex in a single cell edit over 13,000 sites in a single cell, which is a huge feat. For our listeners right now, would you be able to just unpack what that means for biology on the therapeutic side? And what really does this mean from a technological point of view? What are we unlocking? Well, first, I have to lower expectations. I mean, this was mainly a study to, to show that we could reduce the toxicity of that many edits at once. We still have to prove that we can deliver that number of guide RNAs or some other way of doing the editing. I'm quite confident we will. I was much less confident about the toxicity, and we've now solved that. But what it opens up is there's a number of cases where we do want to do multiple edits. So for some immunotherapies, we want to do a small number of edits. For the xenotransplantation, we want to do many dozens of edits in order to make the, the transplants more and more compatible and with the recipient hopefully universally compatible. But again, this is going to take a lot of edits. Maybe having additional advantages like being multi-pathogen resistant, multi-resistant you know, re resistant to senescence and to cryopreservation and to cancer. Each of these will require m many edits. The advantage is for many of these, you can do it clonally. You can either do it th through an animal that's donating the organ like a pig, or you can do it clonally through a pluripotent stem cell, where you can really characterize that clone very, very well in a way that's very hard to do in most gene therapies, where you've got a, a large population of cells, each of which is doing slightly different things. With a clonal characterization, you can take you can find relatively rare cells that have all the properties that you want, and then you can expand them and, and use them. So I think that's going to be an extremely important ramification of this ability to do 
multiplex editing, we may not need uh, 10,000, 13,000 for everything, but we, we certainly have some of the projects where they're already articulated, like the Genome Project Right, which now involves 105 labs around the world. That plausibly involves thousands, tens of thousands of mutations in order to achieve the goal of multivirus resistance. Mm -hmm. Can you actually uh, talk a little bit more about Human Genome Project, right? The goals of the project and, you know, once we are able to create a reference genome from scratch, what does that mean? What is, is that tie into, does that tie into synthetic biology? What are the goals? Well, in a way, it's it's the cutting edge of synthetic biology. It's not just humans; it's, it's any any organism. We want to be able to write the genome arbitrarily. Now, that can either be write, synthesizing it, or it can be editing it. Because in practice, even when you synthesize a genome from scratch, which we, we and others have done, we're in practice information sense we're only changing a small fraction. So, no matter how you do it. To me, it's editing. It's multiplex editing. So, and we're going to pursue every way of doing that, just like we pursued every way of doing multiplex sequencing. It's the same kind of thing. Is is uh, if you can change the genome of not just humans, uh, animals, plants. Some of the animals could affect humans by donating organs, but they could also be used agriculturally, or they could be used in an environment to do carbon sequestration. Same thing with plants. All sorts of microorganisms photosynthetic ones, fungi, and so forth. Each of these has genomes that were previously hard to imagine how you would make hundreds to tens of thousands of changes, but now we can do that. And the point of Genome Project Right is not just to turn the crank, but it's to improve the tools so that everybody can do it more affordably. Yeah, and just to quickly sidestep for a moment, I think one thing I've been tremendously curious about is when looking at interpretations tools or, or diagnostics generally, I think one thing we're starting to notice is that there's a, a handful of different pathways that that people are taking, whether it's interrogating the, the genome or the exome or or maybe even looking at the, the transcriptome or, or epigenetics. How do you see the multi-omic strategy kind of playing out in the future? Do you think that this is something that we're going to see take off and that that when we're doing, whether it's it's consumer genomics or whether it's something that you do on a, on a schedule? or routine doctor visit, what extra information do we get by looking at these sort of adjunct or, or sort of tangential bodies of data? And how do you think that could be used to develop either new diagnostic tools or, or new therapeutic agents? Right. Well, so what you're driving at is the possibility of doing something that's not once in a lifetime. So your, your whole genome sequence in principle, once you have that, you have your inheritance and, it's, and that inheritance is going to change. What's going to change are somatic mutations in your body, both immune and cancer, and epigenetics, which is different. So the somatic mutations are rare. They're either restricted to, to the BNT cells or they're otherwise rare. But the epigenetics is every single cell in your body has a different way that it's playing out the genome, and that's uh, mostly RNA and proteins of the, the assays that we use right now, but there, there will be more. I think that uh, what we're going to find, it, there's going to be more and more emphasis on precision and accuracy than ever before because it's going to be so inexpensive. It's not going to cost you anything, and uh, from that st standpoint, why would you cut corners? The history of genomics so far, and the history of many technologies, is you start out by cutting corners because you, you can't, it's a failure of the imagination. You can't imagine 
that it would be so inexpensive. At the beginning of the genome project, everybody was asking, you know, how can we do 1x coverage? Meaning, how can we read each base pair exactly once and don't, don't waste any precious resources reading that base pair twice? Missing the point that reading it multiple times gives you easier assembly, higher quality, you know, uh, the redundancy is your friend. And so now it's routine to read it 30 times. And it was amazing how few people would accompany me at the Genome Project when we were talking about both high coverage, but also high accuracy. So there was a lot of emphasis on trying to cut corners down to 10 to the minus 2 or 10 to the minus 3 accuracy, while today 10 to the minus 7th, 8th, and 9th is not outrageous. Other ways of cutting accuracy is let's just do the coding regions. That's only 1% of the genome. It might be 1% of the cost. It turns out that the cost of the coding region and the whole genome is about the same. In fact, we still don't, we still have not read out all the cDNAs, all the exons, all the, we don't know all the ways that the coding part of the genome is used. That was a, a shortcut that never materialized. The whole genome is a much better resource, but we can go beyond that. We can do the whole genome, how it folds in three dimensions in the nucleus, how it's decorated with all the uh, chromatin proteins, which right now would be like 300, 500 different assays, different chromatin IPs, chip seek experiments. You could collapse that into one experiment where you're literally visualizing, you're looking, not inside the cell, inside the nucleus, and you're seeing all the RNAs, all the proteins labeled. So each pixel in your image has a little name tag on it, which is the, the next-gen sequencing color barcode. And that we're going to see how simple and how accurate that is soon. And we're going to laugh about how we once tried to cut corners and, and had to use uh, millions of cells and grind them up where we lost all that 3D information. I, th I hope it's going to be quite laughable soon. So imaging is a three-dimensional imaging of DNA, RNA, and protein simultaneously will not be an adjunct side show. It will be the main show. And, and, it and it, financially, it'll, it'll be affordable, but you'll want to do it all the time. Because it's affordable, you'll want to do it on many different cell types at many different points in your life. So if that were to be the, the case and you're, you're taking these, these multiple paths and, and integrating them together in a, in a cost-effective way, do we have the, the compute capabilities to, to deal with that kind of factorial increase in, in information? Are we, are we at prime time in terms of the, the last stage sort of bioinformatics uh, step? Or, or if not, kind of what technological innovations are going to help get us there? Well, one of the things that I think is often underappreciated is our ability to compress data, both lossy and lossless. So initially was said, oh, well, the human genome, you have to store all the images. And so we're talking about hundreds of terabytes of data, you know, 10 to the 14th bytes. Now you can compress it down into a fairly short email, each human genome relative to a set of reference genomes. And the same thing will happen with all this epigenetic information is we'll figure out how to compress it down into something. And ultimately, by the time it gets to the consumer, it's compressed down to very simple, actionable things. Just like your, all the huge amount of GPS data that's floating around gets compressed down to turn right. That's all this, the actionable things that you need to know. And the same thing with, with genetics is your your genome interpretation should not be 50 pages long. It should be 
for most people today, it should be blank. And then for a few, 5%, it should be, you know, this is a way to avoid having a serious Mendelian disease, either in yourself or, or in your children. And that would, that should be a few lines. It isn't, uh, even if you have one of those, it's, it's not a long report. So this ability to compress and focus on the actionable will, will be the, the, the software that we'll be writing now for a few years. So switching gears a little, just a little bit here, it, it seems like regenerative medicine has had a, in, in the new space, people have been talking about it for decades. We've had hematopoietic stem cells, and then we had uh, Shinya Yamanaka come out with induced pluripotent stem cells. But it seems like it never really has taken off for a number of reasons. Do you think that we're at a point now with these cost declines of uh, DNA sequencing, and now that we have cheaper ways of conducting genome editing, that regenerative medicine, that this might be the prime time for it to take off? Well, yes. I mean, first of all, hematopoietic stem cell transfer is among the very top transplants that are done today, in, in part because it's, it's a bit easier. You don't have to hook up all the plumbing. You're just uh, transferring kind of a free-floating cells. That is exactly, and we're moving into a time where transplants are becoming universal, which will greatly simplify. So it may not look like your mother's regenerative medicine, but it, it will accomplish the same thing. So for example, we now have nearly universal CAR T cells for fighting cancer. You don't necessarily have to match the HLA type because the compatibility of the donor and the recipient. For the first time in history of transplants, you know, many decades, we now have that as a prospect. And then right behind it are, is the even bigger universality of, of solid transplants of uh, complex tissues like kidney, heart, lungs, intestines, liver, and so forth. So I think that will be regenerative medicine through xenotransplantation and, and universal uh, stem cells or, or cells derived from stem cells. And then you mentioned CAR-T, just another flavor of immunotherapy. And thus far, it has shown efficacy in liquid tumors. And right now, it seems like the big question mark is, will CAR-T work in solid tumor indications? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm not sure what the benefit is in sticking my neck out on that one. But my guess is that it should work on a huge fraction of them. At first, it sounds like you're fighting a Darwinian problem with a Darwinian tool, which is uh, immunology. But in fact, it's more limited than that because you're kind of pre-selecting one, championing a particular uh, ligand receptor, particular chimeric antigen receptor. But you've got the entire immune system backing you up. So like antibiotics, even though it seems like you've made a single bet, you're actually helping the the immune system do its job, bringing in the cytokines and so forth and and alerting it. You know, part of the question about solid tumors is some of them are not well vascularized. And even with vascularization, it's not always clear that you can get the T cells and other immune cells to cross the endothelium uh, into the tumor. But I think we're going to get better and better at that. All the things that the tumor does to make itself less immunoreactive, we can come up with general methods, occasionally case by case, but I think we'll find general methods to, to make them reinstall their immune reactivity. And at least to me, it seems like the three 
publicly traded CRISPR companies who have the primary uh, patents. So we have CRISPR Therapeutics, Editas Medicine, and, and Intelia. So they've been very active in immunotherapy, whether it's CAR-T or TCR therapy, and each one is taking different approach. But in technology, being first to, say, unlock, being able to address solid tumors or whatever it might be, it doesn't necessarily guarantee success. So do you think that right now, is there a specific variable that will dictate whether one company versus another will emerge as the long-term leader in the field as it relates to genome editing? What distinguishes those three companies and some of their predecessors like Sangamo and Selectus isn't so much which editor they're using, but the depth of their knowledge of the biology and the things that you can, all the things you have to do to get proper delivery, proper cooperation with the immune system, both so that it doesn't reject the incoming help. And so that it does, if the help is an immunomodulator, that it helps, you know, attack something else. And that's a little hard to predict from just some buzzword like we have Cas9 versus Cas12a, or whether we have uh, talons or base editors, or, you know, each of these things is optimizable, and they will be. But I think it's going to be much larger that this kind of the systems medicines and kind of systems engineering of the whole biological set of components is going to be determining the, and, and also business model might as well. So we can talk about systems engineering, it includes uh, markets and so forth. I mean, we do have Orphan Drug Act that does allow us to charge ridiculous amounts of money for things with, that have small number of people. And I'm, I'm very, I think the industry is very pleased, as am I, that that, that is possible. But we also need to identify more common diseases that these can, these can uh, tackle. And my favorite is, is aging reversal. That's something that essentially every, everybody, once we cure the diseases of poverty, even even those nations will, will have a, a problem with their aging population consuming a huge number, amount of resources and opportunity loss because they have to retire early. So that's a gigantic market, and that could drive the price down. So I'm always interested in e- equitable distribution. At a million dollars a dose or even half that, you're not going to get it. But if you have something where you have uh, where the numerator, the, the R&D costs are fixed, but the denominator, the number of people that can benefit, goes up into the billions. Now you have something where you can, uh, you know, it can be a drug like aspirin, but it's still involving. I, I don't think there's anything, no law of physics or economics that prevents us from having even something that sounds sophisticated, like uh, gene therapy, keeping that from being uh, low cost. Right, that makes sense. So right now, if, if you know, given everything you said, so at least the three primary CRISPR-based companies, they're struggling to maintain $5 billion in valuation. And many of these companies growing after, as you mentioned, orphan drug or orphan diseases. Do you think market is ascribing the right valuation to these companies, kind of given that they're promising a potential cure to some of these terrible diseases? So, Or, or do you think the $5 billion valuation combined is too high, too low? What are your general thoughts in terms of where this technology can go and their capabilities? Well, I mean, just because I've been involved in a lot of the technology for gene therapy and gene editing, I don't want to represent myself as being a business expert, (laughs) far from it. But, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised if they're actually a little undervalued. Again, not speaking as a business expert, but as as a scientist, because I think people don't realize how far this revolution can go. 
in particular, uh, the replacement of constant drug use, you know, pharmaceutical therapeutic use with once and done. That is, it's, it, it's hard to estimate that. And it's also, it's easy to believe that it actually costs a lot of money to make these things. It doesn't. We've made them, you know, the, the, it's almost like any bio, you know, casein, for example, you can buy it by the kilogram at your, at your uh, health food store. These things are not that much more sophisticated than casein. They're all atomically precise, but biology can make these things. And you can do QC on them uh, as well. I mean, I, I realize that the QC is a big cost, but most of it's R&D costs. And that can be amortized over large uh, populations if we're if we're good at it. So I think no, I think the rev, the revolution we're just beginning to see the revolution, and there there may be troughs of disillusionment uh, still ahead of us, but I think that long term it's it's easy to underestimate. Right, we're believers at Arc. We we love technology, we love innovation, and that's why you follow a lot of these technologies. But speaking of technologies, what is the single most exciting thing that you're seeing that is changing in the genomics world that really excites you? Whether it's a technological change or advancement that we're seeing, we've touched on many of them, like multiplex editing. I think that's very exciting. The idea that we can make any organism resistant to all viruses, including viruses we've never even seen or, or characterized, I think that's profound philosophically as well as practically. I think the idea that we we could eliminate most Mendelian diseases, as has been accomplished by in the Ashkenazi community for Tay-Sachs, the fact if we could generalize that to all the Mendelian diseases we currently understand in a way that does not require million-dollar R&D, uh, well, million-dollar per dose and uh, billions of R&D dollars and FDA approval, to me, that's a very profound revolution. And preventative medicine in general, that's an example of preventative medicine. But, but I think we're finally wrapping our head around the, poss- on the possibility of stopping it very early, meaning before you're born, many, many, much of the damage is so severe that you can't, you can't fix it with, with therapies. You know, like microcephaly, for example, your brain is so small that it's not going to be something where you just go in uh, with a pill or something. So that preventative medicine, we have to take much more serious, we're, we're beginning to take more seriously, and we're overcoming kind of these deep barriers. So, for example, there was a deep barrier for a while for doing multi-diagnostics, where you would do a large panel of things where you didn't quite know how you're going to use all those things, but you just take the large panel because it's inexpensive. So now, you know, you used to just test one blood analyte because that's all you could afford, and, and, and also... It's all the physician and the healthcare system didn't want to be responsible for a lot of things they weren't going to look at. But now we've gotten to the point where we collect whole genome information, huge number of metabolites and so forth. And the computer does its best. But then the standard of care is there are going to be discoveries that are made later. And we're not responsible for them now, but we will be responsible for them later. That's all becoming part of the modern healthcare as part of precision medicine. But it's already in, happening. I think that's going to be e- extrapolated once we got over the inertia of reluctance to do multiple assays. We'll just keep going, and hopefully, we'll get to a point where diagnostics is taken at least as seriously as therapeutics. I mean, that's another barrier we need to overcome. We really are underdiagnosed. I think it's crazy that we have all these infectious diseases going around, and we don't even know how to name them. We don't know whether it 
some cases we don't even know whether it's an infectious disease or an allergy or a virus or something for which you have an antibiotic. I mean, you just, it's really appalling. Uh, I, think, I think we're going to look back and probably in this case not laugh, but cry about how primitive we were in, in not diagnosing ourselves, even as we started getting the tools to do so. In, in terms of diagnostics and being unable to diagnose diseases, is it just our lack of knowledge of which genes are culpable in different types it's of not, disorders? It's not unable, it's unwilling. That's my point. Is that we're unwilling. to. Te- we, we have the technologies. It's just we're, again, cutting corners, uh, being penny-wise and pound-foolish on dollars we can save on diagnostics and then let somebody go and send their kid to daycare or, or get on a plane full of people and cause billions of dollars of damage without any monitoring. What do you think might be the catalyst to, to get that tone to change? I mean, is it when we get down to the, to a price point where if you if you run the econometrics at scale that it begins to make sure for, for insurers or for, for healthcare systems, how do you see the that battle begin to ebb and flow? Well, I'm a... Uh increasingly encouraged by consumer-directed products and less and not so convinced that we can have revolution within entrenched and large healthcare systems. Hopefully, they can work together. I mean, every now and then, you'll hear some large healthcare system or insurer say, oh, yeah, wearable and, and handheld devices are the way of the future. But generally speaking, that comes through the grassroots. And what we need, what will probably happen first is we'll get, just because it's inexpensive, we'll start getting incorporated into our electronic devices. Our, you know, our homes are becoming more responsive. We carry around more gear in smaller packages. So, you know, it used to be that your phone, you couldn't carry it around at all. And then you could carry it around, but it didn't have a camera, didn't have the internet. And you keep adding these things. And, and after a while, the next big thing to add is ability to sense the environment in a profound medical way. It could be incredibly inexpensive with something like, say, nanopore technology. You could do 24-7 monitoring. And again, you're not going to see all that complexity. People are going to write great apps that, that say only when things are actionable, like, hey, you know, you're walking into a room with Ebola or with multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. That's actionable. Get out of there. So I suppose just uh, in the interest of time, is there anything else that we haven't touched on yet or, or that maybe you'd, you'd like to talk about that we can touch on just before we part ways? I think we've covered a lot of territory. I think we're going to have to do this again someday. <laughs> Great. We would we, love we would, to have yeah, you back we would. on. Absolutely. There's so much happening. I'm sure in a week's time, we'll have a whole host of other questions. <laughs> These are exponential times. and I feel like uh, my lab is living very close to the singularity. We haven't quite entered the black hole. We're on the outside enjoying the, the view. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. This was very informational and hopefully people listening to the podcast will also have found this informational and just understanding how the world is working and where we're headed towards. Thank you for doing this for society. I'm happy to be a pawn in your game. (laughs) Appreciate it very much. Thanks a lot, Professor Church. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. 
Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.